Today's Old Testament reading is from Psalm 15, 1 to 5. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts, and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Today's New Testament reading is from James chapter 1, verses 17 to 27. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And now please stand for the reading of the Gospel. From Mark 7, um, chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, 14 to 15, and 21 to 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their, their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me. 
Everyone and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Phyllis. And wow, it is cool to see people in pews. The last time I did this, I had to imagine everyone through a camera, and I didn't like that as much. Um, My name is Matt Sickle, and I am an elder here at Washington Community Fellowship. Uh, This summer, we've been exploring ideas about God's transforming justice through the lectionary readings. And before we dive into the passages that Phyllis just read, uh, I want to speak briefly about how we came to this particular group of Bible verses for this week. For those of you who are unfamiliar, a lectionary is a group of scriptures given for reading on specific dates throughout the year. There have been many lectionaries over the years, uh, including some used by the Hebrews during the centuries before the life of Jesus. Uh, But this summer, our church is following one called the Revised Common Lectionary. It was assembled by a consortium of North American Catholic and Protestant churches uh, in North, uh, and was published in 1992, uh, and it is currently in use by churches on at least four continents. And the reason that I call attention to the lectionary today uh, is that I could not have predicted what I would take away from these three readings in Psalms, Mark, and James when I held them up Uh, next to one another, and next to our theme of God's transforming justice. Where I ended up after spending some time with these three passages were some thoughts about my own behavior, uh, some thoughts about our conduct as a church, uh, and about how we might become more effective in pursuing God's transforming justice in our city. that's, that's not the sermon that I set out to write. Uh, it's just what I found uh, when I was in the Word. So, our theme. Let's consider God's transforming justice. For the purposes of the sermon, I think it'll be helpful if we have common definitions, and so I'm going to offer two uh, to shape our, our understanding of what justice is. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, justice is the quality of being just, impartial, or fair. And so that immediately begs the question, well, what is, what is just? So uh, a common understanding of the word just for today might be acting or being in conformity with what is morally upright or good. And so when we combine these two ideas of, what, of justice and what just is, um, that leads us to something like the quality of being morally upright or good in a way that is impartial or fair. Righteousness plus impartiality. There is power in that. Appeals to justice can call the attention of individuals and groups to the brokenness of their relationships and set them on a path toward repentance or healing. But appeals for justice can also be used in building mistrust and a sense of grievance. The same calls for impartial application of moral standards can either soften hearts or harden them. What we're looking for is righteousness with impartiality. 
how can we be sure that we're dealing with the real thing? Well, because we are seeking out God's transforming justice, we need to understand what God has to say about righteousness and impartiality. That is, the sort of justice we're looking for is the one where our God is the authority on what is morally upright, what is just, and what is fair. Righteousness with partiality. Today's lectionary readings uh, light the way. About 1,000 years passed between the writing of Psalm 15 and the New Testament scriptures in Mark and James. And together they provide a glimpse of the morality that God desires. And it is pretty convicting to read all three of these passages together. I don't know if you felt that while Phyllis was reading. Um, but together I counted 32 traits of a person whose conduct God either embraces or rejects. So first we'll begin with the 15th Psalm. In Psalm 15, we find King David, the king, Israel's prototypical king, musing on the characteristics of a righteous person. More specifically, he asks, who may dwell in God's sacred tent or on God's holy mountain? The prophet Samuel described David as a man after God's own heart. And here we see David asking exactly the sort of questions you think someone after God's heart would be asking. And then he answers them. David asks, who gets to come onto your holy mountain? And he's asking about how to be in the closest possible relationship with God. Mount Zion was described uh, by Samuel and the psalmists as the location of God's throne, a place that God would save and a place where God would install a king for his people. So David asks, how can I be worthy to come on that mountain? David also asks about what sort of a person he has to be to come even closer. Who may dwell in God's tent, he inquires. Well, consider, what was the place where David's people encountered God most closely, most intimately at that time? It was the tent, the tabernacle, the portable temple in which the Ark of the Covenant was being kept. And interestingly, it did already have very specific rules about who could enter and how and when and what they had to touch or not. Um, the book of Leviticus in particular is filled with rules that David would have been at least aware of um, and, uh, and that defined who was ceremonially clean, that is, who may approach God's presence in his temple, or in this case, his tent. So in some ways, David would have known the answers to the questions he was asking already. The rules in Leviticus had been around for a couple of hundred years already, and David has something else on his mind. David, the one after God's heart, describes an entirely different set of qualifications for drawing near to God. And Psalm 15 is so cool. It is uh, about a hundred words that are really efficiently packed with soul searching. It is direct. It is efficient. David believes that God's invitation to draw near is based on a person's righteousness in thought and action. First, he describes the way a person speaks and is spoken about. God desires a nearness with the people who, uh, with people who are blameless and truthful. This is a high bar, especially in combination. 
Do you know someone who's able to speak the truth about injustice and remain blameless, never crossing the line into anger? That's a tricky balance. David goes on, the kind of person who belongs in God's tent does not cast slander and casts no slur. And that's really hard. Our society is uh, deeply involved in slander and slur. Even our conversations in the supposed service of righteousness, who among us in the frustrations of the past year or the past decade has kept themselves from slander and slurs? Who among us has the self-control to avoid the temptation to ridicule the people that infuriate them? Not me. I'm not invited into the tent based on this set of qualifications. But according to David, if you happen to be someone whose conduct, among others, is above reproach, who is in control of his word, someone who, though they may feel anger or disgust, is capable of restraining the urge to slander others, then you might make the cut. And then David goes even further. The person welcomed onto God's holy mountain keeps oaths even when it hurts, lends money to poor people without charging interest, does not accept bribes against the innocent, that is justice. Costly righteousness and the highest moral conduct lived out impartially. The one welcomed into, God's, uh, into the tent reflects God's righteousness in ways that are quiet, reliable, disciplined, and importantly, she does not change her behavior to exploit someone when she has the upper hand. Remember our definition of justice, righteousness with impartiality. That's the character David is saying God wants to invite into his close company. And I think that's some of what God's justice looks like. So no wonder David concludes by describing this person as someone who will never be shaken. I want this unshakability. When I enter into a conversation about what was just with someone who is hostile to my thoughts, or even just someone who is skeptical of what I have to say, I feel the shake in my voice. I want to be able to advocate for justice without the trembling. And in Psalm 15, David shows me the work that I need to do and the righteousness that I need to live out if I want to be able to advocate for justice without credibility or with credibility and without shaking. Next, our gospel reading in the book of Mark calls us forward in time about 1,000 years to a moment of frustration with Jesus. We've already met Jesus sad this morning. Now we get to see Jesus grumpy. In chapter 7, the Pharisees challenged Jesus about hand-washing rituals and the cleaning of kettles. Why do you eat with unclean hands, they ask him. Why, that is, do Jesus and his disciples allow themselves to become ceremonially unclean and therefore unwelcome in God's tent, or now the temple? But Jesus says they've wandered badly off course. Remember in Psalm 15 when David, who knew about the cleanliness laws in the Torah, came to an entirely different conclusion about what made a person welcome in God's presence? In Mark chapter 7, Jesus offers sort of an ugly mirror image of David's descriptions of a godly person. Rituals, Jesus explains, are not what makes a person clean. What goes in, that is, what you eat, 
isn't what makes you unclean. Again, it's about character. It's about living out our righteousness with words that reveal a clean heart. And so Jesus describes the character of a person who lives in rebellion against God. And to make, to make clear to the Pharisees the kinds of behaviors uh, and uncleanliness which, with which God is concerned. And the list is broad and a little bit repetitive because, like I said, Jesus was frustrated. So I'll, I'll group uh, those offenses into three loose categories. And so the first is that the unclean person has a corrupted heart. The person, Jesus says, is one who is full of evil thoughts of envy and pride and coveting and foolishness. Second, the unclean person lives in obedience to their body's sexual appetites. They indulge themselves with adultery, with such sexual immorality and lewdness, which I will note Jesus does not define here. Different conversation. Uh, then, finally, the unclean person has a corrupted relationship with their community. They steal, murder, slander, and deceive. What does any of this have to do with justice? Well, remember, to understand God's justice, we need to know what sort of conduct God considers to be just. In these passages, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that the just person, that the ritually clean person, is defined on different terms than the ones they are expecting. Discipline and gentleness and righteousness in one's heart and in one's use of their body and in one's relationship with their community are the purification rituals that Jesus offers the Pharisees. When we advocate for justice, when we listen and discern and communicate about what is just, how can we incorporate these ideas? As individuals and as a church, how can we shape ourselves into a people after God's own heart? Our final passage from the first chapter of James offers us a path. The letter of James was written by James, uh, brother of Jesus. It was written to encourage and to challenge the Christ, uh, Jewish Christians who are experiencing famine and persecution. It is a short little book, uh, but it is full of wisdom designed to help the churches persevere together. Quickly, in just the first few sentences of the letter, James has already focused his attention on the behaviors that will build up their community and that are pleasing to God. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, he says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Anger does not produce God's righteousness. And that's frustrating. <laughs> James is encouraging a group of people for whom anger seems like a justifiable emotion that it is the wrong way to go. That if they are hoping to bring about godly justice, a godly justness, they need a different path. James points them to the word, to scripture. And I don't think that James is saying that there's nothing to be angry about. Early Christians had things to be angry about. Uh, Jewish people living in Palestine under Roman occupation had things to be angry about. Today in our city and in our country and world, there are things to be angry about. James gets that. 
but he also sees the difference between a worldly righteousness and a godly righteousness, between a worldly justice and a godly justice. James points his audience inward in a way that reminds me of our earlier passages from Psalm 15 and the Gospel of Mark. Instead of anger, James's response is to look deep into the word and then to do what it says, to remember what sort of a person Jesus has reshaped him into and embrace that identity as a strategy for seeking justice. James, oh, sorry. Uh, James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. In the final two verses of today's scriptures, James writes, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Living out the word is integral to the strategy for doing justice that James offers. Living with moral integrity while protecting the economically and socially vulnerable are inseparable parts of James's strategy for how to do God's justice. What is so authentic to me about these two verses is that they are written to people who have to solve more than one problem at the same time. Uh, we know what that's like. We had more than one problem last year, this year, now. Uh, there is real urgency to fixing the broken systems in our world, and there is equal urgency in taming the monsters of anger and slander and injustice in our own hearts, and we have to work on both of those at once. Our congregation, if I may be so bold, can certainly grow in this two-track approach. I am encouraged by the actions we have taken in recent months to bless our community, by our creativity in caring for one another through the pandemic. I am encouraged by this sermon series and God's justice and by the boldness of some of the preaching that I've heard in this sanctuary, uh, particularly last summer. I'm immensely encouraged that some members are organizing uh, to welcome a refugee family, and I hope that they and we are able to succeed in that important work. But I'm also kind of discouraged sometimes. I'm as guilty as anyone here of allowing myself to engage in the unproductive anger at injustice that James cautions us against. I and we do allow our anger at the latest scandalous soundbite to spill over back into slander and slurs at people who disagree with us. I'm concerned about the time that we spend shaping our thoughts and our hearts with news and entertainment sources that have profit and policy motivations to keep us angry. And I'm concerned about the amount of time uh, that we spend in God's word pales in comparison to those other things. It does for me, anyway, and this causes me to wonder 
when I might be like the person that James described who looks at himself in the mirror and then immediately forgets what he looks like. My hope is that we would increase in our commitment to knowing and understanding God's word and that it would give us the steadiness that allowed us to pursue God's justice in ways that just don't seem possible right now. My hope is that the current burst of energy and resources for our small group ministry would create spaces around the city that allow us to encourage one another to be rooted in the word which James says can save us. And I hope that the energy that we invest in considering God's word together might lift us above the noise of contemporary cultural debates and toward a justice that is unique and recognizable because it reflects the one who does not change like shifting shadows. That, in the context of our small groups, we might hold up the mirror of scripture to one another and to challenge one another to not forget what we look like. I have been helped to see some of my own blind spots through long, close, patient, small group relationships that I have had with other members of this church. They have held the word up to me and shown me myself and how my words and actions don't yet reflect God's transforming justice. And I am so grateful and I need uh, you all to continue to help me in that way. So let's look together into the mirror of scripture. Let's see ourselves clearly and confront justice with something so much more powerful than our anger, with the steadiness that comes from being in God's company. Amen.